Welcome to the Fullness Church Weekly Podcast. At Fullness, we value the Bible and believe it is critical to teach it clearly, remaining true to its central focus of hearing and living the transforming news about Jesus. Our hope is this teaching will do just that. Today is the first Sunday of Advent, and it's good to be together, isn't it? We're going to go to to the very beginning. We're going to go back to the creation story, and we're going to go to the fall this morning. And so I'm going to read Genesis 3 to you, the whole chapter. And uh, it won't be on the screen behind me, so just listen. Listen to the story read to you. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say to you, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman, or knowing good and evil, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and there was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and, that they, uh, together and made loincloths. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me to be with me, she gave me fruit from the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you've done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife name Eve, because she is the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever, 
Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth or the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Bless your name. Well, let's begin with a question. And the question I want to begin with is, gosh, how long did it take Adam and Eve to fall? <laughs> um, not, the answer is probably not long. You know, the book of Genesis doesn't give us a, a straightforward answer, exactly a, a time stamp of how long it took them. It's interesting, I'll say this, if you look back and read ancient Christian um, commentators and interpreters of Genesis all the way up until recent centuries, they're pretty much, they, there's a consensus view. They probably fell the day they were made. That's almost the consensus view. Um, Augustine imagined they lasted six hours. God made them, and by around 10 a.m., when it was the cool of the day, God's walking and they're done, right? Um, others, some, some of them suggested that maybe it was the next day, it was the seventh day of creation week, that the serpent, that first Sabbath day, the serpent wanted to desecrate the holy day. Those are basically the two options that you see as you look back over church history. And it's speculation, of course, but it kind of feels a little nice to us, right? Like, hey, well, they didn't last that much long either. Um, I don't last that long. Um, so whether it's hours, days, weeks, or months, you get the distinct impression reading Genesis that they didn't last long. And even in, in the story, Eve's creation comes at the end of chapter 2, and just at a literary level, uh, the man and the woman were made on the same day, the sixth day. And the very next thing that happens after Eve is created is Genesis 3 opens with the serpent's temptation. You get the impression it might have been the day of. If nothing else, it didn't last long. And God comes and he curses the three parties involved, the serpent, the woman, the man. I'm going to take him in reverse order, the man, the woman, the serpent, because I want to hone in today on, on the serpent. But God says to the man, and to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for your dust, and to dust you will return. Now, there's a, a connection I want to make for us. It's a connection that's a little bit more obvious if you read the Bible in the original language in Hebrew, because you have the man, Adam, which is formed out of the ground, Adamah. So there's this linguistic connection between the man and the ground, and it's not just linguistic, it's even thematic in the story. The Adam is literally formed out of the Adamah. A, a, a translation of Adam, which just means man, and later becomes a proper name, that really makes this connection would be to call Adam the earthling. He's the one who's come out of the earth. And there's this need that the earth has for the man. You see in chapter 2 that the ground did not yet have a man to work it. 
the text says. The ground needed the man, and God took the man and put him in this garden to work it and keep it, that there was to be this harmonious relationship between the Adam and the Adamah, the man and the ground. And so you're supposed to feel the tragedy of this curse, that what was meant to be this harmonious relationship has been severed, and now the man is bringing a curse on the ground. And now the ground is going to cause pain to the man who is meant to always work it. And the, the cursing between the ground and the man actually continues. In the very next chapter, God speaking to Cain, who's killed his brother Abel, says, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength, doubling on the curse that Adam had already received. You shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth. I mean, chapter 3, the ground's cursed because of the man. Chapter 4, the ground's cursing the man. Um, And you see this disruption between what was meant to be. You see the same thing in the curse of of the woman, a disruption of what was meant to be. So in uh, Genesis 3.16, we read this. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain. In both cases, pain enters life in the experience of a fallen world. In childbearing, in pain, you will bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, or as, as the ESV translates it, contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Now, in, um, in the Hebrew Bible, there is a way that it, a word can be emphasized, and a way to emphasize a word is just to double the word. So, for example, you'll be reading through in the Hebrew Bible, and you'll come across gold, gold. And we translate gold, gold as pure gold. It's really gold. We'll just double that, right? So, in this text, there's a double word, and it's raba, raba, raba. And raba means much or great. And so the King James translates it, greatly multiply your pain, NIV, or make the pain very severe, NLT, sharpen the pain. Women in this room have given birth, you know about the rabba rabba. Um, I I will belabor that point, pun intended. Um, So, let's see, where am I at? Okay, so what about the next phrase though? So the next phrase is, typically translated, your desire will be for your husband, Um, and the ESV translates it, contrary to your husband because of a point I'm going to draw out. So um, in interpretation of the Bible, there's a phrase that we, we interpreters will try to hold to or an idea, which is context is king. And the idea behind context is king is that how words and phrases and ideas are used in that context by the author helps understand how those same words and phrases are used by that author in that, in that book or that writing. So uh, the, two, the two Hebrew words here for desire and rule appear only together, appear together only one other place in the entire Hebrew Bible besides Genesis 3.16. And that only other place they appear together is in the very next chapter, Genesis chapter 4. So how it's being used in Genesis 4 is going to be helpful in understanding how it's being used here. Context is king. So God says to Cain in Genesis 4.7, He's angry, he's bitter towards his brother Abel, whose sacrifice God accepted. And already, this is stirring up within him in, in rage and violence. Is on the, is, is, um, he's about to fall into this murder. And God says, God tries to pull him off the cliff. If you, do, if you do well, will you not be accepted? 
And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Same Hebrew words for desire and rule. And the imagery here is sin is like a predator. It's lying, it's crouching, it's about to pounce on Cain. And its desire for Cain is obviously not a a benevolent desire. It's not for his good, it's for his destruction. It's not for his self-interest. And God's saying, you're in this antagonistic relationship with sin. You've got to dominate and master sin. Um, So this is helpful in understanding what the author is doing here in Genesis 3.16. That whatever the desire might be that the wife has uh, for her husband or in contrary to her husband, it's not this pure, virtuous, wonderful, selfless desire. This is a result of the fall. This, by the way, is a curse, right? Um, and, and the re- result of this, life in a fallen world, is that men rule over women. And by the way, uh, this is basically the story of humanity, is male domination of women as the result of men who are plagued by fallenness. Um, a text can be descriptive or prescriptive. What we mean by that is, if a text is descriptive, it's describing what is or what will be. If a text is prescriptive, it's prescribing what ought to be or what should be, right? Um, Genesis 3.16, or Genesis 3.16, I want to submit to you, it is descriptive. It's how, thing, it's how things will be among marriages in a fallen world as a result of the fall and the curse. Um, Adeline is in kindergarten now, and we're getting regaled with playground stories. It's awesome. And uh, the other day, Adeline told Jordan, like, how uh, she and her friends will play family, and she's like, I'm the wife, Jack's my husband, Uh, Eleanor's our cat, and uh, Eli's our friend, or something like that. And uh, Jordan's like, okay, what do you do? And she goes, well, Jack makes sacrifices for me. Jordan goes, she makes, he makes sacrifices for you. What kind of sacrifices? I don't know, just sacrifices. That's what she says back. And um, anyway, I'm like, I like this Jack. Like, I'd be curious to know what he's up to in 15 years. Um, I, want a, I want a man to make sacrifices for my, for my daughter. In Ephesians 5, that's where we go, right, man? Um, husbands, lay down your wives, make sacrifices. Lay down your, your lives for your, your wives, as Christ did for the church. Um, men, of, men of fullness, make sacrifices for your wives. You say, Gabriel, what sacrifices? I don't know, just sacrifices. <laughs> um, if you want a prescriptive text on how husbands ought to treat their wives, go to Ephesians 5. If you want a descriptive text of how men often treat their wives in a fallen world, go to Genesis 3.16. So what we find in this passage, though, is that um, Eve is still the mother of all living, as we see in verse 20. Adam still meant to work the ground, as he was called to um, in chapter 2. Man and woman will still be given in marriage to each other and become one flesh, as we saw in chapter 2. But as theologian Margaret Schuster says, these gifts aren't taken away, but now they become bitter. What was meant to be this harmonious relationship between the man and the ground is now bitter. What was meant to be this harmonious relationship between the man and the woman has now become bitter. Not taken away, but, but bitter. 
Humanity feels the angst, don't we? We feel it. We feel that, Christian or not, the world is not as it should be. But we're a double-minded creature. We, we build hospitals and we commit genocide. We grow families and we walk out on our families. We have an incredible capacity for kindness and an incredible capacity for cruelty. We are made in the image of God and we're marred by sin. So what that means is we want to turn the world into a garden, but we also often turn it into a den of thieves. In short, we cannot rebuild Eden. Alfred Nobel, a Swedish chemist in 1867, woke up one morning to read his own obituary in the local paper. And uh, he read this. Alfred Nobel, the inventor of dynamite, who died yesterday, devised a way for more people to be killed in war than ever before. He died a very rich man. It was actually Alfred's brother who had died. The newspaper had made a mistake. Um, but it had such a profound effect on Alfred that he decided to initiate the Nobel Prize, a reward for scientists whose work fosters peace. And Nobel said this, Every man ought to have the chance to correct his epitaph in midstream and write a new one. You know, the questions of has my life produced more death? Has my life produced peace? Um, those are questions like Alfred that we should all be, we need to be confronted with. Um, efforts towards peace and healing in the world are, are vital and important, and they need to continue. They need to increase. Um, but Nobel Prize winners cannot save humanity. Um, they can't save themselves. We need God. We need God. We can't rebuild Eden. And I think it's important that we receive the truth of just how broken and shattered a race we are as humans. Um, Let me read you this poem by Anna Maria von Sherman, who said this is a kind of poetic depiction of the fall. Hell enters their souls and stirs up those alien passions of fear, envy, and hate monstrosities hell has fashioned. Conscience is their tyrant and drives them from God's clearing. They cover their shame while the devil stands there jeering. They hear the voice of God who walks upon the wind. They fear God's vengeance will devour them both for sin. Yet Adam then is asked aloud, whither does he flee? No tree or leaf gives him cover, for God his heart can see. He'd hoped, it seems, to attain an even greater renown and with his own glory, yet without God himself to crown, and to become God's own equal, at least in his own opinion, greater not in holiness, but in majesty and dominion. God wants the man's own mouth to speak and not dissemble. Why, he's fled from God and now before him trembles. How far the foolish man has fallen. He does not find it odd to suppose that by deception he can also blind his God. He hardly knows any guilt. He rather calls it shame and tries to cloak his flight as fear of God's own holy name. His nakedness alone it is that fears God's voice right now. And he argues here no better than would a pig or cow. Was he not naked before? Did he not then hear God speak about? Blessing and warn of the curse before he wanted his law to flout. Seeing God was his happiness, the voice of God, his joy, as long as he clung to God and true virtue did employ. But now that he has cast away the Lord's favor and his duty and absorbed a hellish poison that has ruined his former beauty, 
He fears to show his God the devil's image on his visage and feels that death and hell have become his lot and lineage. Death became our lineage. And that's what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For indeed, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Quickly, what's going on here is Paul saying, Moses, who brought the law, um, was not the, the law, what law does by saying all those thou shalts and thou shalt nots of the law, um, when I do the thing I shalt not do, the law counts that sin. It says, there, there it is. That was the sin Gabriel committed. But what Paul's saying is, humanity did death-breeding acts before the law came. We were destroying and corrupting and darkening God's world. Death reigned. Death reigned. And that is the state of humanity after the fall. On the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. That's what God said. If they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The, the snake just lies. You won't die. They buy the lie. And Adam and Eve died that day. Not a physical death. They actually lived several hundred years. But they experienced the Bible's definition of death. Separation from God. Nothing could be worse than separation from the God for whom you were made to commune. No fate could be worse. Adam and Eve died that day. And as Jesus said of the devil in John 8, 44, he was a murderer from the beginning. He's the father of lies. That, that phrase, from the beginning, often harkens back to the creation story. I think it does there. And that could refer to Satan's perhaps involvement in the first murder of, of Abel through Cain. I think at a more fundamental level, Satan as the murderer from the beginning speaks to the fact that he led Adam and Eve to their death. My grandfather, uh, growing up or studying in his liberal theological education in the 1950s, um, he said, Gabriel, when I was studying at that time, one of the big questions was, is there a real devil? And, uh, you know, the idea there being, surely the devil is just this religious concept. Uh, yeah, there's evil in the world, but it's a bit naive to suppose there's this malevolent, powerful creature working against the purposes of God. Like, g get real. That was kind of the, the feel. So, um, you know, now the question isn't, is there a real devil? It's, is there a real God? Um, but our, I want to say this, the, the reality of the devil, it's an, the reality of the devil is an important aspect of Christian theology. Um, and it's one that we shouldn't blush at simply because it sounds absurd in the modern ear. Um, the existence of the devil is a reminder to us that humanity doesn't just in a free state reach for the forbidden fruit. We're sold lies by the enemy of our souls. The existence of the devil is a reminder that while Adam and Eve bear the responsibility for their rebellion, there's another sense in which Adam and Eve were murdered. Murdered. The devil worked towards our death. And the devil sought about to bring corruption into God's good world. And 
Although allowed under God's providence, the devil succeeded. In our time, the secular rejection of God has enormous consequences for where we locate the source of ultimate good. Without God, we say that humans are the source of good. But the rejection of the devil also has enormous problems for where we locate the source of ultimate evil. Without the devil, we say humans are the source of evil. But humanity is not the source of evil. We are not the murderer from the beginning. We are not the father of lies. And so our society collapses on itself, doesn't it? We look at one human and say, you are good and beautiful, whatever you are. Could you be any more perfect? I don't think so. And, and then we look at like another human and say they're evil incarnate. Like they're dark and twisted and destroying the fabric of everything, our country, whatever, you know, I'm not going to get into it, right? We're so duplicitous. And so what's happening is today as people increasingly reject the existence of God. What this will mean is that we distort the source of ultimate good. Where good comes from. Um, but as we reject the devil, we distort the source of ultimate evil, where evil comes from. And without clarity on the source of good and evil, without a belief in God and the devil, we do the only thing we can do as creatures who have eaten from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the only thing we can do is locate the source of good in ourselves and locate the source of evil in ourselves. And so what happens is we then paint this picture of humanity as this beautifully flawless, hideous monster. Well, which is it? Are we beautifully flawless or a hideous monster? Secular humanism is a walking contradiction. My friends, you are not a hideous monster. You are made in the image of God. My friends, you are not beautifully flawless. You reach for the fruit that kills you and darkens God's world. You and I need God. We need him. And the, the, the fall is only proven that we're still stumbling over the knowledge of good and evil. Just clueless and how to handle the knowledge of good and evil. God was right to withhold that tree from Adam and Eve. But with the fruit, the taste of the fruit still in their mouths, God, because he's just that good, makes a promise right there. In that very moment, doesn't wait a few hundred years, right then, right there. Because even though the devil's been a murderer from the beginning, God's been a life giver from the beginning. Even though he's been the father of, of lies, ours has been the father of truth. And God promises the head of the serpent will be crushed, will be crushed. But the way in which it's going to come about, it, it just is so unlikely, right? Because Adam and Eve are hopeless. They're useless. They're unreliable. I mean, if it's going to happen, if deliverance is going to come, then surely that's going to mean that God's going to have to sideline Adam and Eve and do it himself. And the beauty of Christmas is that God did do it himself, but he did not sideline Adam and Eve. The offspring of the woman shall crush the head of the serpent. It's incredible. He came, Jesus, to do war. 
see here. Uh, sorry, that first one was Genesis, by the way. <laughs> this one is 1 John 3, 8. It says, For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. For this reason the Son of God appeared, sorry, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Um, yes, the Son of God appeared to love lost sheep. Amen. He also appeared to destroy the works of the devil. Promised from the beginning. You know, I was thinking about it this week, like, okay, so why was it that God says through the, this, through the seed of their offspring of the woman that this snake crusher will come? And why, why not through the offspring of the man is what I'm getting at. And uh, that would make more sense at face value, right? I mean, it was through fathers that people typically trace their ancestry in the Old Testament. Why the seed of the woman? And... You know, I think at least at the text of Genesis, we could say that, well, it was the woman who was deceived by the serpent. And so God's going to, from the woman's offspring, breed, uh, bring this um, the snake crusher who's going to crush the head of the deceiver. Uh, there's a poetic justice there, as it were. Um, and I think at a kind of looking at the whole plan of redemption level, um, there's this truth that... <sighs> God knows something that the human author of Genesis couldn't possibly know, which is Jesus did not have a biological father. He didn't. Um, the snake crusher would be born to a virgin mother. Jesus was not the offspring of Joseph. And that's a point that Matthew and Mark in particular make very clear in a number of ways I don't have time to share. <laughs> um, but all four gospel writers repeatedly refer to Mary as Jesus' mother. Um, I'll put this verse up just quickly in Luke uh, 3.23. So you went to sleep for me. If you could put Luke 3.23 up. It says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being as was supposed, uh, the son as was supposed of Joseph, right? Like, the gospel writers, in a number of ways, is just one of them, make it clear, Jesus was not Joseph's offspring. He was parented by Joseph, but not the offspring of Joseph. Um, the Son of God had no beginning. The second person of the Trinity um, <laughs> was co-eternal with the Father and the Holy Spirit. But 2,000 years ago, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, my, my sister-in-law, Gina, sent me a sermon by Father Mike Schmidt this week, and in his Christmas homily, he was asking kind of the congregation this question, as you're driving around this Christmas season and you're seeing nativities out and about, and you see the, you see the, the infant Jesus in the manger, what is the infant Jesus doing there? What, is, what does that mean? And he said, the presence of that baby in the manger is nothing less than a declaration of war. That's what it is. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That's Jesus partook of what you have on right now. Flesh and blood. The same, he was every bit as human as you. Every bit as flesh and blood as you. That through death, his death on the cross, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That's the devil. 
Let's be clear. The devil has the power of death, destroying it, and deliver those who through fear of death were subject to, a, to lifelong slavery. Lifelong slavery. He comes and destroys through death the one who has the power of death. The, when you're looking at nativity, I love that. That's a declaration of war. That's, that's the image bearer who's also God come to crush a head. Brothers and sisters, Jesus has fought for you. He's overcome for you. Take courage. Take heart. The season of Advent, which we enter into this Sunday, it's about the two Advents, the two arrivals of Messiah. The first Advent, celebrating the male child who was born to rule the nations. The second Advent, looking to the glorious return of Messiah, who will finally and completely vanquish and banish this ancient serpent and restore Eden to planet Earth. What we can't do. What we can't do. See Revelation 12, 20 through 22, and then Revelation 20 through 22 on that. In other words, there's still some snake crushing to be done, and that's a point Paul is making in Romans 16, 19 to 20 where he says, for your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. See what Paul's doing here? Um, In speaking of the God of peace crushing Satan under your feet, he's of course alluding to Genesis 3.15. Now, he's also including, just like God tends to do, saying, you're in this with me. Under whose feet? Your feet. God's doing the crushing, but under your feet. That's a whole other sermon I don't have even time to get into. I'd love to preach it. Um, But he's also, in, in verse 19, alluding to the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um. So, what did the serpent the do in trying to deceive them to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? The serpent said, hey, God knows. God knows if you eat of it, you'll know good from evil and you'll be like God. Your eyes will be opened, knowing good from evil. You'll be like God. And so when the woman looked at the tree, she saw it was good for food, a delight to the eyes, and desired to, a desire to make one wise, is what the text says. So you see what Paul's doing here? Paul's kind of coming back and turning it on its head. He's saying, when it comes to that which is good, be wise. When it comes to that which is evil, strive for what Ab and Eve had before they fell. Innocence to that which is evil. It's beautiful. And God's going to crush that snake's head. <laughs> so good. God will crush the head of that serpent, that ancient serpent. Until then, the rage of the dragon on the earth is great, as we see in Revelation 12. And Revelation 12, 17 tells us, the people of God, keep the commandments of God and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Pursue obedience. Be wise to what is good. Be innocent to what is evil. Gordon T. Smith says this. He says, um, the response of the snake was brazen. For he says, you won't die, Genesis 3, 4. 
There's a sense in which every time we're tempted, we are once again encountering the suggestion that sin is not a matter of life and death. We believe and act as though sin will not really destroy us. It's age old, isn't it? Every time we rebel, we are leaning into death. Every time we pursue the things of God, we're leaning into life. Of course there's forgiveness. Of course there's grace. But let's not obscure the fact that it's always about life and death. It's never not been about life and death. Because God, God's ways lead us into life and protect us from death. He's a good God. He wants to protect you from death. So when you go against the things he's called you to do, you're going into the very thing he's trying to protect you from. It's never been anything other than a matter of life and death. Colossians 3, 9 and 11 says, Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old man, the old humanity, the old self. It can be translated different ways. With its practices, and have put on the new self, the new man, the new humanity, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. What a beautiful call. We're a part of a new humanity in Jesus. Being renewed in knowledge after the image of God, which, by the way, we haven't lost, but we need to be renewed in the knowledge of the image of our creator. Wolf, uh, Wolfgang Musculus, which must be the manliest name I've ever heard. I was <laughs> like, jeez. Um, got wolf, gang, and musculus. Anyway, um, he says, it is madness to come to the point that we honor God's image in ourselves, yet pay it no respect in our neighbors. Renewed in knowledge after the image of God. By the way, if we're being renewed in knowledge after the image of God, that doesn't give you license to disrepute the image of God and those who aren't believers. That's madness. Now, tragically, we, we despise the image of God and others. And on the other side, and this is equally demonic, uh, we worship others who are made in the image of God. Uh, we, turn them in, we turn image bearers into idols. Let me give you all a recent example. I was at um, a creative's retreat, and it was a place where people could kind of bring their, their uh, a novel they were working on or a piece of art they were working on or a quilt. I brought my doctoral thesis chapter I was working on. And uh, anyway, I was in a common space at one point and uh, asked a woman there, like, what'd you bring to work on? She said, you know, I, I actually didn't bring anything. I, I really just came to learn to cease from striving. I said, oh, that's good. What, uh, what do you do to, to pursue peace? And she said, being out in nature. I love being out in nature. I said, oh, yeah, me, me too. I love it. So good for my soul. Well, what about you? What do you, what do, you do uh, to seek peace? And I said, well, you know, one of the things that we do in our family to seek peace is we try to keep a weekly Sabbath day. And for us, that means, um, you know, trying to, to cease from work and labor and, find, and rest with each other, rest in God um, and worship. And it's a little hard because we got two kids, but we do the best we can. And she's like, oh, yeah, no, I, it's got to be hard with kids. And I was like, yeah, but, you know, I think really it's, it's mostly about worship, creating space for worship and being attentive. 
Um, and she goes, oh, that's good, worship. Yes, worship. We worship our children. We worship the universe. And I thought, that's not exactly the <laughs> direction I was going. Guys, we need to be renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator, not of the universe, not of the idolatry of others, renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. And in that place, as Paul says, there's, there's neither slave nor free. Let me go back to that verse real quick. Uh, slave nor free, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Christ is all, and Christ is in all. Um, Jesus, I'm gonna, let me go and invite the worship team up. I'm probably running long. Um, let me invite the worship team up. He is renewing, he's on a mission, Jesus, to renew all of creation, restore Eden to planet Earth. And he began with the image bearers, which were the pinnacle of his creative work on the sixth day of creation. And to do so, he became a human. He partook of our flesh and blood. But I want to draw out something that is unbelievably profound, that I can almost never talk about without crying. <laughs> Um, and I'll get to it. So Romans 8, 2, and 3 says, For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ, Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Let me unpack that for a moment. Um, the law, what the law could not do is it could not present us fully righteous before God. Not because the law didn't, give us the standard of righteousness, but because my flesh came along and weakened the effect that the law might have had if I had lived perfectly. Does that make sense? The law said, here's what it would be like to live a perfect, godly life. And my flesh weakened the law. It made it ineffective because I can't keep it. I can't keep it. So God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. What Paul's saying here is Jesus didn't simply come as some pre-fallen human. He identified not just with humanity, but with sinful humanity. He came into Adam and Eve's sinful heritage and lineage. He's the offspring of the woman. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh. And in that place, I mean, all the connotations that come with being in sinful flesh, a propensity towards sin, our own weakness, our, our own propensity to, to give in to temptation, in, all, in that place, he stood and lived perfect, holy before God and killed the power of death in us, in his own body. Herman Bezel said this, expounding this truth. The word, that's the eternal word of God from the beginning, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity, did not just enter into the reality of humanity as it was originally intended by God. Jesus didn't come as some pre-fallen fallen Adam. This is so important. He didn't just enter into 
the reality of humanity as it was originally intended by God, but into the full seriousness of the corruption of the human image. He became flesh. Jesus is becoming man would never have saved us. Only his becoming flesh. Oh, what's the next? There we go. The, <laughs> come on, come on, next slide. His becoming man would simply have heightened our pain. Why could you not have been such a man as he? It would have proved what we could have been if we had not fallen. His becoming, his becoming man would, would have been, as it were, a mocking of my plight. You see what Basil's saying here is, look, if Jesus had just come as this pre-fallen human and didn't identify with the likeness of sinful flesh, he would have just been this flawless, beautiful human walking among us. And all it would have done was said, oh, well, that's what we could have been if Adam had even never fallen. Well, there you go. That's what we could have had. No. Oh, sorry. He, he identified with us to the uttermost. Simply becoming man would not have saved us. He came into the full seriousness of human corruption, lived a perfect life from that place, not deserving of death, not deserving of condemnation, not deserving of abandonment from God or exile, and he went to the cross and was abandoned by God, exiled from God, condemned, bearing our condemnation by God, and dying in our place. Guys, in the fullness of time, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that they might have the full adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And so you're no longer slaves, but sons. And if sons, then heirs with God through Christ. Yeah. Friends, I want to give us a moment. If it's, let's, can we close our eyes and, and for a moment before him? I want to give an opportunity for anyone in the, in the room today to receive Jesus. To receive Jesus, this one who has loved you from the beginning. And if that's you this morning, if you're saying, I, I need to receive him, I need Jesus, I want you to pray this prayer. I want you to pray this prayer with me. Lord Jesus, I... Actually, can we all say this prayer aloud? Let's just say it aloud, and for those who are saying it for the first time, they'll hear it with the rest of us. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I am fallen. And I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. I receive you as my Lord. I receive you as my Savior. I offer my life to you as a fragrant offering. Stand and go back into worship of this one. Lord, we love you. I thank you for the promise from the beginning. <laughs> Again, with, with the taste of the fruit still in their mouths, Lord, you declared hope. You declared deliverance. 
we thank you for being the snake crusher in our souls and in this world. We bless you. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this teaching blessed you. If you ever find yourself in the Birmingham, Alabama area, come check us out. For more information, please visit fullness.life.